0: Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old-school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my phantom thought. So in this episode, we're going to have a call from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety cast, uh, pointing out that uh, he has heard people say, charge in. And we're also going to have calls from Jason and Spencer from the Keep Off the Borderlands podcast about muster. And finally, uh, Jason has a observation to make about my ad actual play. So uh, let's get to those calls.
1: Hey, Jason here. Listen, episode 60. You just played Jason Hobbs' first call about charging. And I have heard that term expressed verbally before by Chicago Wiz, Michael Shorten over at the Dungeon Master's Handbook podcast. When he talks about it, he does verbalize it as charge in. Okay, back to the episode. Hey, Jason again, still listening to episode 60. I paused it before the actual play. I do have some thoughts on what you're reading from Muster, but before I really weigh in, I'm going to pick up a copy of Muster myself so I can read it. and and take it all in context. I'm not saying you're presenting it out of context, but before I present kind of what I'm thinking, I want to read it to make sure I'm not misinterpreting anything. And, um, yeah, but I I thank you so much for picking this product and highlighting this because there are a lot of interesting ideas and and a lot of good ideas in there. So uh, I'm excited to pick it up, read through it, and then engage in discourse about it. Okay, let me go listen to the actual play.
0: I think that's a good idea. Uh, I could very well be presenting them out of context. Uh, I'll admit, I'm a I'm a little out of my depth doing this. Uh, you know, whenever I sit down to to do something like a, a review, whether it's a product or, you know, do something online, you know, that Amazon reviews or what have you about a product or something, I a lot of times I can't come up with anything more than I liked it or I didn't like it, or it was neat. So. I'm I'm kind of uh, outreaching my usual uh, style or what have you, doing this. But I found the book interesting enough that I wanted to to get into it and try to point some things out. So it could very well be in my floundering around that I that I end up putting things in an improper context. And I think it would be great for people to pick it up and read it for themselves. I hope that what I do say is enough to interest to people in the product because i think it's it's something worth reading if you're a fan of this hobby and kind of how it works procedural plays or or different styles of play or older styles of play and i think it would be fantastic for you to do that because you do such a good job with the way you uh do reviews and and just analysis or what have you about rpg products and uh movies and television shows uh you just do such a great job and and to anyone else out there listening if you haven't listened to the nerds rpg variety cast jason he does do a lot of rpg but he also is a big movie guy he he goes he talks about a lot about movies and directors and actors especially if they're in the news because uh it's it's something special about their about them about their genre or if they've if a if a Person has died, or if it's their birthday or something. So, uh, I I encourage you to to check out his podcast because it, it's fantastic, and uh, Jason does a great job. So, uh, thank you for that call, and I hope you uh, find a lot interesting to talk about in the book when you get
2: it. Hey, Pink Phantom, Spencer here. There's something that really stood out for me in that Mustering Goblins episode, the part about play being authentic. And I'm abridging the text slightly, but no bias or preconception about how things are supposed to go. If your play resembles historical D&D, it's because you come to the same conclusions, not because you're aping the past. I think there's something there that's really fundamental to what the OSR is all about, and why it's so easily misunderstood, Because it's about learning from the history of the game, not about aping the past. It's not about going back to how we used to play, but examining those rules and, for some people, distilling those rules which led to that play. I don't really have a lot of interest in war gaming, but I'm finding this text particularly interesting, and uh, thank you very much for sharing it.
0: Well, thank you, Spencer. I'm glad I was able to
2: bring that to your
0: attention. The the text, I mean. Uh, I think what you said there's there's something really there's a real gem of of a analysis idea there. Uh, we talk about you know aping the past. We're trying to get the same results. We're trying to get the same end. It's it's kind of the systemic equivalent of you know, railroading. Trying to here here's the here's the preset destination, and here's the starting point, and so this is the path we're going to travel to get there. Whereas just taking a, a rule set, and reading through it, and and playing through it, and adapting to it, and adapting it to your your world, or your play group, and you may end up in the same place as the players and the groups and the originators of that rule set of the past, but you may end up somewhere different. And, you know, the OSR style is... I know there's always a debate between is OSR style... You're basing what you do on these this narrow set of texts and deriving from that or is it the the way you approach those rules and do them and that that juxtaposition in you know is it preset is it is it rigid is it not rigid how flexible is it that exploration of play is at the heart of old school style play and the OSR interest in that old school style of play. And I don't know that I'm really adding anything new to what you said. I'm still mulling through it in my mind and working through it. But I think I think you make a great point that it's it's about getting in there and playing and it's something that you can have different interpretations of rules because in role playing you're role playing in a world. And so you're trying to have a world whether that world is cyberpunk or fantasy or sci-fi or gonzo or uh, mystery, some type of mystery, a mystery set in Sherlock Holmes time a mystery set in modern times, uh, film noir, any of these different kinds of genres that you can try to explore. And a rule set is not going to 100% define it, and it's up to the people to work together to find that, that play. And a lot of times, a lot of different groups end up in the same place. And so you know, exploring that interaction, exploring that dovetailing of different groups, maybe even different approaches to reaching a way of play that's consistent... That's one of the fascinating things that we're still playing with in the RPG hobby as a whole is, you know, what is the essence of RPG? What's the essence of role play? And while there can be many different answers, there's also within those different answers sometimes common threads. And so this particular book is pointing out a play style that uh, the author believes leads to if you're following, a, if you're starting with a and d type rule set and you you go through this process, you're going to end up in a similar place to that old school style of play, which is a style of play that a lot of people seek to emulate because they find a, a satisfaction and a richness to it that they haven't found in other play styles. So thank you for the call, Spencer. I really appreciate it.
1: Hey, Jason here. You don't have to play this. I'll leave that up to you. I, I guess I'm still a little confused how you're doing. Well, I'm not confused how you're doing. I understand what you're doing, I think. But as far as the missile combat and melee, you know, even if we're saying that one character is shooting over another's head, you had two different characters engaging in missile combat in the, the fight against the giant beetles. You know, and, and in theory, you're swirling around. It's a minute it's of action. So really, there should be a chance for all those darts. Or, or bow shots or whatever to, to hit other characters, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess you, you can – it comes down to how you view the abstraction of uh, of that minute-long combat round and melee combat. I'm not saying you're doing it wrong by any means, but but I guess the question is, you, you know, the justification. But, again, if, if you think you've answered this and you think I'm muddling things, they don't play this, because I'm not sure to question – and I'm not trying to make the podcast. I'm not trying to make it sound like you're playing wrong. Because that 100% is not my intention. I'm enjoying it. And, it, you know, it's your game. I'm just, I, I guess, a little confused. So I don't know. If you, you send something right back to me. Or if you want to say it on the show, that's fine, too. No big deal. They, but, I, like I say, I'm not calling you out. I'm just curious. So anyhow, let me let you go. Uh,
0: well, I, I don't think you are muddling things because uh, I did it wrong. When I say I did it wrong, I mean by my own uh, justification, mental image, whatever, what have you. I did it wrong. There should not have been two missile shots in that situation. Uh, What I've tried to, what I've kind of developed, and this is play my war gamer instinct, is that this group when they are you know, engaging in, in combat and when they have the option, the opportunity, when they win initiative, when they have surprise, when they have the opportunity to the enemy is unaware of them and they have the opportunity to maneuver, they put themselves in a situation where the sort of three frontline characters, Bernie and Gus and Sven, are you know, they're in a hallway or they're they're in a narrow area. Or in that in the case of that combat I tried to to describe it as they had the surprise segments and they used them, and then they kind of backed up into a corner with enough room for for the others behind them, and but they were essentially putting themselves between the Beatles and them, so they couldn't couldn't come through. So you have the enemy on not coming at you from all sides, and then within the within that context, because Sven is about half the size of the characters behind him, I've, I reasoned that they can, they can get a shot over him without threatening him or the others. And that may be right or wrong, you know, within the context of the rules, but that's, that's just been my, my mental, my mental image. But I did do it wrong because both of them couldn't have that shot. Both of them can't fit into that same space, you know, two objects can occupy the same space, that sort of thing. And I think what happened is, the way I generally am running these combats is, I've got an index card with the characters listed on them, and it's got the combat basics, essentially. Uh, Two hit bonuses, damage bonuses, armor class, hit points, and, and what they need to hit the the first twenty in the combat matrix so that way I can work up or down from there to see how far up they go and still hit on a twenty and how far down, you know, what the difference is if they where they need to hit that's a nineteen and eighteen or what have you. And so I think what happened was I just started going down the list and I gave them all a turn. That that's what I think happened. And, you know, that was just me not paying attention to what I was doing, so yeah, you're not muddling things. You're just you're just pointing out an inconsistency, and that's that's not muddling and that's not meddling. That's just that's just pointing something out, and when it's done in you know good intention, then I don't have any problem with that. And so, and pretty much, I think everybody that's called into my show, if they've had a question or or something to point out, it's always been with a good intention. They're looking for clarification. They just want to point something out in case I missed it. And I, I've got no issues with that, so don't don't worry about it. <laughs> and thank you for calling. For the uh, sort of OctoSR entry of this particular podcast, I'm going to talk about uh, Surprise in ad 1st Edition. Uh, but, but before I go into that, uh, most of my OctoSR entries are going to be continue to be about the book muster uh sort of the wargaming way of rpgs of old school rpgs and i have a question for those of you out there that listen on a regular basis would you prefer that since so much of the stuff on muster because i've done episodes that are just standalone just sort of extra episodes and i've also rolled my roast my most recent regular episode i rolled um talk about muster into that would you prefer that the episodes about mustard just be separate and just about that, just OctoSR episodes that are just about that, versus rolling it into an episode like this one that's a regular episode that has calls and actual play and things like that? And uh, if you have a preference, uh, just let me know. Uh, you can reach me at Phantom Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Or if you're on Blue Sky, Blue Sky, at The Pink Phantom. Or if we share Discord servers, you can find me at The Pink Phantom on Discord. And you can send me a message that way. I prefer Muster be separate. It's fine if Muster is rolled into the regular episodes or what have you. Because with my RPG a day episodes, I didn't do those in my regular episodes. I just had them all separate. and I didn't know if that would be a preference for folks for this. But going back to Surprise and AD&D. So I have been doing Surprise and AD&D wrong. Because <laughs> looking back to it, and this was triggered by, uh, there's a YouTube channel called Joy of Wargaming, and uh, Mr. Wargaming on there has been uh, doing an AD&D solo adventures of his own. And he does discussions, he does live streams, and so there's discussion in his comments and there's discussion in the live stream commentary that you can see on replays and on his Twitter Twitter feed as well talking about various things that come up during play about rules and such and it and surprise is one of the ones that came up most recently and I realized that I've I've been rereading through the rules that I've been adjudicating it wrong because there's several different parts to it What it basically comes down to, for anybody that's not familiar with it, is you roll a six-sided die when two parties, two groups, meet. You roll a die for each one, D6, usually. And on a one or two, the normal surprise is on one or two. If you roll one or two, that group is surprised. And so what happens is if one group is surprised and one group is not, or possibly even if both groups are surprised... Uh, one of the groups gets an advantage in that they get to act sort of for free before having to roll for initiative and engaging in regular combat. If the, if that's what's going to happen, engaging in regular, regular combat. Or they will have the opportunity, if they're not surprised, and the other group is surprised to say, ooh, that group's too strong, we're out of here. And they, they get away because the other group is surprised and can't come after them. And... The part where both parties are surprised is you have to look at the relative numbers and subtract to see how many segments the the group that's less surprised gets to act. And if you're not familiar with AD&D, again, uh, segments are sort of a subset of time within the, the subset of the combat round, essentially, in AD&D. In AD&D your your basic adventuring timeframes are turns, which are ten minutes, combat rounds, which are one minute, and segments, which are six seconds. So a a segment in AD&D is um, is I, th- I think is exactly the same amount as a round in uh, current D&D fifth edition or I guess it's one D&D now. But you, you do the subtracting thing, and I've always kind of done that for any surprise situation where somebody is surprised, and that's that's not what you're supposed to do. And said that, okay, the the group that wasn't surprised rolled a five, the group that was surprised rolled a one, so the group that rolled, that rolled the five gets four segments of action. And when you get a segment of action, you get to treat it like a combat round. Except for with spells, because spell casting, the the time it takes to cast a spell is in segments, so you you won't be able to really cast multiple spells during a surprise a surprise situation. But upon reading the rules closely, the the die roll is okay. Let me get this straight in my head so I can get it straight to you. The die roll when you are surprised, the die roll indicates. How many segments you are surprised. So typically a one or two shows you're surprised. So if you roll a one, you're surprised for one, you're surprised and inactive for one segment. And if you roll a two, you are surprised and inactive for two segments. Now if the other party isn't surprised, that's all that matters is what you rolled on the die. If you roll a one, they get one segment of action. If you roll a two, they get two segments of action. Now, there are monsters that say in their description, say that they surprise on a four and six. So you could potentially roll a four. And then then in that case, the monster would get four segments. But if the monster isn't surprised, well, if either party isn't surprised, I'm going to say, use the monster as an example. But if if one group is not surprised, the monster is not surprised and the party is surprised, then the party's die roll is all that matters in terms of how many segments the monster gets. Or vice versa. If the monster is surprised and the party isn't surprised, the monster's roll is all that matters in terms of how many segments they get. And you only do the subtracting if both groups are surprised. Because what's happening is if you have a monster that rolls a one and the party rolls a two on surprise, the party is inactive for two segments. The monster is only inactive for one segment. So basically in that situation... The monster and the party stare at each other for six seconds, and then the monster gets the next six seconds to act because the party is still surprised for that second segment. So that's what I've been doing wrong. I've been saying, okay, the monster rolled a six, and the party rolled a two, that's four segments of surprise. No, the only way you're going to get four segments of surprise is if the monster can surprise you on a four, and you roll a four, and the monster ends up not being surprised. So I hope that's made everything as clear as mud, (laughs) but that was something I thought I would share because it was something, you know, I've learned in my ever evolving education of the AD&D rules. So that is going to do it for my OctoSR segment for this particular episode. I said segment again. So now we're going to get on to the actual play part of our podcast. And now more from my solo ADD RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. So this episode's Tales of the Dragon Slayers is divided into three parts. Uh, the first part, which I'm starting now, I'm going to briefly discuss the situation outside the keep/ slash dungeon that the party is clearing out as their base of operations. Right after this will be a a brief story beat uh, illustrating a circumstance that has occurred in the world. And then finally, at the end, I'm going to talk about how I'm setting up and managing the dungeon for the characters and with the characters. So first, the world, as the knowledge has become clear that the dragon is no longer a threat uh, up at the... Fort, the where the where the wall is, a group of merchants and and traders, and just a big caravan on its way down to the town that's about a week's journey away, not quite a week's journey away, has put put together to help start moving goods and such up and down up and down the road, and a fairly large contingent of the fort guard is going to go with them since the roads have been essentially unmanaged since the dragon forced everyone out of the area. And then as the, after the caravan reaches the town, the guard, as it comes back up, they're going to start reoccupying the five keeps. Well, four of the five keeps that helped guard each, each, A day's journey between each one, a day's march between each one, with the exception of the one that has been granted to the PCs for their base of operations. So that's the setup for what you're about to hear. The caravan has successfully made it down to the village, and the troops are starting to move back up the road and are prepared to occupy that first keep near the town. Lieutenant Rattach rode up to the main column, battered and bloodied. Captain Vuren asked, What happened, Lieutenant? No, sir, Radick responded. They've occupied the fifth outpost. They moved in quick. There wasn't any activity a couple of days ago, the captain mused. They're present in numbers, sir. One of our men saw a youngling. They attacked as we approached to warn them away. We took wounded and withdrew. They did not pursue. Very well, then, Vuren responded. Get your wounded, scene two. We'll give them a wide berth and double-staff the next garrison. He turned to his adjutant. Send a message to the town to warn them of Knowles. We'll see how the commander wants to deal with this. Since I've mainly been doing wilderness travel and some some role-playing aspects through the little, little story beats, I thought I would explain how I'm doing this essentially what is a standard dungeoneering situation. So what I've done is I'm using utilizing the solo play dungeon generation in Appendix A of the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, using the dice to set up the rooms, the corridors, and the contents that are in them. In order to sort of manage how I'm able to get through the dungeon, I'm not really generating... At least for the first level, I haven't really just generated on the fly. Generate a room, encounter the room, go with the room. I generated the first level of the dungeon, and as you know from previous, an upper level that was generated through use of the same, same tables. And laid them out and rolled the general contents. Now, it, when you roll for contents, you can get an empty room, uh, monster, treasure, or monster and treasure. And you can also get things like tricks and traps and stairwells and stuff like that. But that is it's very basic. There's There's sort of three outcomes for rooms and chambers. And what I've done is, just so it will be a surprise to the party, so the party doesn't go down there since I'm running the party with absolute knowledge of what's down there, which I can somewhat offset by saying, okay, do we go left, right, straight, rolling a die? What I've been doing is I've been rolling sets. So I know in this section of the dungeon that the party is likely to be exploring, there's this many rooms that have just treasure, this many rooms that just have monsters, this many rooms that have monsters and treasure, these corridors that rolled up as wandering monsters, and such. And I roll essentially an array of, of a few more than what that number is so if i have five rooms that are just treasure i might roll seven or eight rooms worth of treasure if i have six rooms that have monster and treasure i'll roll six set i'll roll more than six sets so seven or eight sets where it has the monster and the treasure and everything all set up but you don't know what's where and then anytime i i hit one of those points where, okay, this room has a monster and a treasure. I'll roll on that list, and that will tell me which one of those to to do. The second thing I've been doing is I'm not a huge believer in dungeon ecology, that everything has to make sense, and it has to be you know, organic and biologically based, and where are they eating, whether they're eating, and how are they getting in and out, and all that. I do believe a great deal in the sort of mythical underworld type of dungeon where sometimes there's just weird stuff. Sometimes you've got a room with a big dragon in it and a room with a bunch of tasty little kobolds next to it and they haven't gotten eaten yet. Or maybe they're working for it or maybe they're not or maybe they're they've just moved into that section and they're not aware. There could be a lot of things happening there. It doesn't all have to make sense, but I do like that for there to be themes and opportunity for for when I get to an area to think about what's, what's going on in that area. So it's not just the monster is in suspended animation until the party kicks in the door. So what I've been doing is, and this is not going to pay off until later, is as I have rolled up these creatures that exist, I will look to the monster manual and find the entry for those creatures, and I will roll... Is this their lair? Because there's a percent in lair, and I will look to see what the number the monster manual has that you roll up for them. Because in the dungeon procedures, you're you're rolling less numbers because it's a dungeon. You're underground. It doesn't make sense that there's a room with three hundred orcs in it, thirty to three hundred orcs. And I don't think I'm not looking at the monster manual. That's not the number, but that is a number for for intelligent creatures is thirty to three hundred or forty to four hundred or Twenty to two hundred. So I'm so I know that may won't be down there in that room, but they could be down there in that dungeon. So I roll up. I'll roll up how many creatures there are if this particular room is, in fact, their lair. I will roll up their lair treasure, and this does end up with double treasure sometimes if the monsters and treasure were already indicated. But the the lair treasure is usually. Much higher standard than the the treasure you're finding in the rooms, anyway. And I'll and I'll do things like that. That way, I can, as time goes by, I can attune the wandering monster tables, and eventually, probably the monsters period, to be start being these groups. So it's a little more consistent as you go down as things have funneled up. But add, I'll also continue to roll on the random tables because they are situated by dungeon level, and that will sort of add new opportunity for new creatures to be in there. And I think that'll create a dynamic eventually where you have different monsters in different ways and figuring out what their relationships are. And it's not all planned out and there's not this big, maybe history to them unless one just pops to mind. Oh, it makes sense that this creature is here and these creatures are here, that this is what's happening. So that's what I'm doing with that. So, it's, it's kind of an amalgam process with what's in the book, with what's in the Monster Manual book, with just what's bouncing around in my head. So, I'm hoping it'll end up more coherent than just random rolling, but not so coherent as if I'm planning out an ecology. So, that's it. That's going to do it for this time. Thank you to everyone for listening. One last addendum, because as I listened through, I realized I kind of got myself off track going one way and then kind of veering around it. When I generate a monster through the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide random tables for the first level, I go and I go to the monster manual entry. I do roll if it's a percent in layer to see if that is their layer, that is their, their base that they're operating out of. But I also... I mentioned that there were, that there are higher numbers in the monster manual. I also roll on that to determine what the total number is of those creatures in that dungeon. And they could end up being in a, in a layer somewhere else. If that top level room is not their lair. they could be in a room somewhere else. They could be in several rooms around an area. And I haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to determine that. I'll, Try to do that kind of organically as the as the process develops, and I get deeper into the dungeon. And they can they can be wandering monsters. They can be monsters established in rooms, but that way there's some, but they are somewhere in the dungeon, and there are a large number of them somewhere in that dungeon. So they're got to, to be dealt with at some point in different numbers up and down, and you get the first level creatures. When you get, If you roll them up on the second level or the third level, there's more of them in a room anyway. So eventually you'll get to that number, and they may not be in all in one area. I haven't figured out, you know, if their lair is not on the top level, but they're in there and there's a lot of them, is there a way to say, hey, uh, if they're here, then the rooms around them will have some in them, or they'll be more likely to come up on the wandering monster table or something like that. So I, did, I didn't mention that part specifically. I wanted to, to put that in there to make sure that was clear, if any of this is clear. <laughs> and one of the reasons why I think this will work with this particular dungeon earring situation is because as the, as the dragon had kind of ravaged the countryside, a lot of these creatures moved out of their areas trying to get out of the dragon's range, or maybe their home was destroyed by the dragon and they were forced to move. And so it would make sense that since the the guard posts that had been established along the road, some of them were, were home-built and some of them were established on previously existing structures, that since this dungeon is going to end up being pretty large based on what I've rolled up on the first level, that creatures would have maybe known about it that lived here, known that it was here, and known that it was big, and known that, yeah, it's dangerous, but is it more dangerous than a dragon? Maybe not if we all go there. And the reason I know why it's a big dungeon is because in rolling up the first level, I've rolled up several stairwells down to the second level. I've, of course, rolled up the stairwell that goes upstairs a little, which I kind of envision being inside sort of more the peak of the hill, which is, according to the staircase, is two floors up. So there could be a floor in between the base floor of the dungeon, the entry level of the dungeon, and that upper floor that the party has turned into a base of operations i haven't rolled a stairwell to that It just goes well, i don't think i have to take my map again now i'm double thinking myself but i do know i have rolled up a a entry that goes three levels up so in the very top peak of the hill near the top of the hill there's something and that won't be very big i intentionally kept that two floors up section kind of small and it, it kind of organically ended up that way so so that worked out with that intention And so that top one will probably just be a room or two or three, depending on the size. But I do know that there are also on the first level stairwells down to the third floor and stairwells down to the fourth floor. So there's at least three floors beneath the main floor, and there's at least one more floor up in the the top of the hill. And there's the potential for a floor in between. If some sort of stairwell or entry or, or maybe it's just a portal. Maybe there's a uh, portal somewhere that can, can go there and we can, we can say, okay, I wrote up a portal. It makes sense. It goes to this level. We don't also also have access to, but makes sense that it's there because there's a stairwell that goes up above it. So trying to finish that thought. Uh, and I know it, it was a little contradictory because I said, I, I don't believe as much in the dungeon ecology, and then I mentioned consistency. And those two things don't seem to work together. But I do like the idea that eventually the the creatures that have settled in, the, the type of creatures that have settled in, have settled down. It's not 100% completely random, maybe. And that there's a way that it makes sense, at least in my mind, that there is a recent history to this dungeon, and maybe there is a deeper history that I'm just not going to create from scratch. Or maybe I can create pieces of a history and scatter them randomly throughout. I know I have, over the years, had ideas for rooms and and groups within a dungeon or area, and maybe I'll dig some of those up and see if I can plop some of those down as I create more, more customized tables to run on than just the generic ones that are in the d and DMG. I'm going to keep trying to incorporate those. What I'll probably do is If I've generated a very large number of large number of creatures, I may say, okay, fifty percent is gonna be from based on what's the first level based on the first level, and then the other fifty percent I'll just continue to roll on the regular random tables. Something like that. I don't know what the exact percentage will be. We'll figure that out when we delve down to the next level. (laughs) For now, I'm just gonna keep doing it this way, generating general content, and then it can it can narrow down and focus down as time goes by. So thank you for listening, and uh, please, if you have any questions or any comments, uh, let me know. The contact information is in the show notes, and it'll be in the outro as well. Uh, you don't have to be on the air; you know, it doesn't have to be played like the calls earlier. If you don't want that, just let me know, or if you just want to comment, and say it's just for you. Uh, I don't want it read even read on the air. Then let me know, and I'll I'll do it that way. But and, but I'll still respond. I, I like hearing from people because this is kind of part of the fun part. It, sometimes you get ideas from other b- folks as well. That's part of the great thing about this hobby. Anyway, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> the opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans, and the closing music is Late Night Radio, both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just want to give you thoughts, ideas, response, and it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me. Just I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at podcast at gmail.com. And that can be a regular email, or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantomthoughts. You can contact me via my Google voice number, 864 864- Two zero nine one four four one. you can contact me via speakpipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts you can contact me on discord the pink phantom all this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode and thank you for those who call in thank you for those who don't call in I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time until then I hope you have a great day